Hey y'all, this is Anne with a quick note before the podcast starts. This was our first time recording, so we learned some stuff this go-round. Like, if I'm not mic'd, you can't hear me speaking. So every once in a while, I'll drop in to let you know what helpful thing I had to say to the guys. We'll get that sorted by next month. Thanks for your understanding. Hi, I'm Steve. And I'm Mac. Welcome to Civics on the Rocks, where we talk about politics, history, and science. And science fiction. And we're also drinking. Yes, lots of drinking. And also bad jokes. Not distasteful. Just poor quality. All right, let's get started. Today's question is, what is civics? Something, frankly, we've been hearing about in the news occasionally. So, what is it? Well, civics is, so it'll be a course, middle school or high school. And I remember my mom saying that, like, her dad, so way back when, only went through the eighth grade. But in eighth grade, their social studies class was civics. So, it's about government. Um, It's about your rights and responsibilities as a citizen. Some states like Texas um, actually require a whole class in government. So... Some of it's about your rights and responsibilities, and some of it's how government works. But not all states require it. I'll take a philosophical approach. People, whenever they live in groups of more than one, have to have some kind of rules and organization to live together. And if there's enough of them, they decided to call it a civilization. And, well, what are those rules? And how do we learn what they are? That's the civics part. Or, or social contract, but okay. Yeah, 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 if you want to be fancy. Yeah. I personally never had a civics course in school, but I had government classes yeah. and economics classes and things yeah. like that, which to my mind seemed to have fit the bill. And so when I hear older people refer to, oh, kids don't get civics nowadays, I'm always like, well, I didn't have civics per se, but I had a government class and I had other stuff. Well, so. it, it's some states have always had just like civics. And if they had anything related to like economics or business, it might have been personal financial literacy or, or actually, you know, or whatever. I mean, Texas, for as long as I've been around, has required a class in government, a class in economic. Um, but it's, I, I think a lot of the, because like something like 40 states out of 50 have some kinds of classes in government or history or that sort of thing. It's it's something like so wait like ten states don't yeah and I kind of I'm kind of curious about what goes on in those states but anarchy um, it, well well maybe mass hysteria sure. cats like, and I dogs need to look up the the state you're living together <laughs> yeah okay um, social contract no um, but it's I, I think a lot of this you know they need to teach kids about rights and responsibilities these days it's like that happens more often than it doesn't. I mean, there, there are something like 30 of the 50 states, roughly, that, that have government or civics classes and something like, I think it was, I read 20-something, actually require that you take some sort of test in civics before you graduate. Uh, I think a lot of people, I, I think a lot of this, especially is like, oh, people don't know their history, and those is like there's a lot of people who just weren't paying attention in school is just straight up what it is added to that the people who maybe paid attention in school but then decided to ignore it or forget it for their own particular preferences later on in life possibly distracted by i don't know like game shows on nbc 
Well, that could be a thing. I would argue there's also some people who, you know, not only were in school and graduated school and then perhaps obtained positions of public authority in the military or the police and then decided to, you know, stage an insurrection. So I'm going to argue the civics didn't take, but they were there for it more than once. Look, not all cops. <laughs> so let me. I said so, some. So, yeah. So let me say something, Steve. I've had students share with me, former students, a video from PragerU about Ooh. Christopher Columbus. It's animated. And he's talking about how slavery isn't that bad. So there, there's, there's what's, what's taught in schools. And, and I, I would bet if, if you look at the, the state standards for different courses or whatever, you know, it's about what you would expect. But then there are other competing narratives. And by narratives, I mean... Alternative facts. Is this a family podcast? Things I'm not going to say. But yeah, alternative facts. There you go. Well, I think that's the thing is that people may have got taught civics at some point. And even if they were paying attention, they later on found more comfortable ideas, things that more appealed to them because they agreed with their preconceptions, their biases, and they latched onto that. And I actually think that's something that is worth exploring, not by us, but like why, like why, why do people have that comfort zone where they need to go to a narrative that may be mostly false, partly false, totally false, but it's like comfortable so we're just going to stick with it because a, a lot of people who promote you know some of some of these like they know it's not right but like they get they get to say it and and it's like there's a rule that like you you have to you know you you have to respect what i'm saying or whatever and it's like well not if it's not true yeah and that's that's what boggles my mind is I understand there's reasonable differences of opinion and differences in priorities and preferences and you know, all that which is there's room for that and there always has been basically but yeah this whole I get to pick my facts is is frankly a little difficult for me to fathom it's a little tough well it, it's so I I've started in the last well about 10 years I've started every every um every class with the question, how do you decide what you believe to be true? And, and try to, and we talk about Plato's allegory of the cave and, and, you know, I try to get them to at least think about it and say, we're going to revisit this because things are going to happen. You know, we talk about current events all the time um, because things happen and, and it's pretty easy to relate it to, you know, the study of civics and government because everything. You know, and, and it's, it's gestures wildly. Gestures wildly. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I started teaching 1996, which was literally the most boring presidential election ever. Bob Dole versus Bill Clinton. And it's like, I mean, people have no memory of it. You know, it's like literally voter turnout was like 49%. It's the only time it got below 50%. And I remember thinking, it's like, man, if government's going to be like this, I'm going to have a a pretty big task in front of me to get kids motivated and interested in government. And then the 21st century happens. So this year is your fault, you're saying? Uh, well, maybe karmically, but mm -hmm. sure. Okay. I'll accept that. Yeah. This was all contrived just to make it easier for you to teach government. It's like the, the, the moroseness Swedish guilt, you know, <laughs> in the genes. So sure. 
what always amazed me in the whole civics thing is is that everywhere I've heard people complain about civics, they're always frankly boomers. Who I guess had a class called civics, or or government, or yeah. But I think I think the other people didn't, and so they think, oh well, you didn't have a class called civics. You have no idea what like the Constitution is or the roles of a citizen or anything else. And I'm like, no, I got that. Well, and listen to what stuff. they say the Constitution is, because a lot of times they're wrong. <laughs> I mean, it's like, the Constitution says this. Actually, it doesn't. <laughs> Find it for me. I will bet you $100 that what you just said is not in there. You mean like how the First Amendment like prevents you from s- restricting my speech? No, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that, that gets, the First Amendment is great. Can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Well, okay, well, there's there's more to it than that. And if there was a fire, you could. Yeah. And yeah. So, well, like, like kids, look up Brandenburg versus Ohio. Just just do that. 1969. <laughs> so the the whole yelling, you know, you can't falsely yell fire in a crowded theater. That was in Schenck versus United States, which is 1919, I think. And 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 that was where Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes and the court, you know, said not all speech is protected speech that represents a clear and present danger is not protected but shank is no longer good law well and and the speech that the speech that was clear and present danger was handing out leaflets encouraging people to avoid the draft yeah, to avoid the draft was, or not show up and, yeah, yeah. it's categorically not even close to something yeah. like yelling fire in a crowded theater and yeah. it was pretty clearly political speech yeah absolutely so brandenburg versus ohio you have a white supremacist who was like advocating overthrow of the government. And that was the kind of thing, like Ohio had a state law. You cannot advocate overthrowing the government. Other states had the same law. When was this case? 2021, 2022? No, 1969. Okay, my It's bad. been around for a bit. And um, and they said, you know, that, that it's political speech. It was not specific. I mean, he wasn't giving orders to somebody to start shooting I mean, that, that would be the kind of thing. And it wasn't, I mean, threats are not protected. Conspiracy is not protected. But just saying somebody ought to overthrow the government, that's protected speech. And in one of the cases, it may have been Brandenburg. I feel ashamed for not knowing. But the court said it's exactly the kind of speech that's unpopular that needs protecting. Because if it was popular, nobody would care. Um, and so that that's pretty much the standard unless the current court changes things i don't know we'll maybe come back to the court later but going back to the first amendment what i what i find fascinating is like the i believe the first word in the first amendment is congress, congress. yeah shall make no law everybody starts saying well twitter can't do this because of the first amendment or some you know whatever random platform because or, of section t- uh, 230 well there's that misunderstanding too but i'm like they keep referencing First Amendment like, no, First Amendment says Congress shall. Yeah. And then 14th Amendment also states shall. Yeah. But like they keep trying to apply it to everybody. It's like, no, that's a government restriction. Yeah. If I don't want you yelling on my yard, you don't get to yell on my yard. If yeah. You don't, I don't want you yelling on my social platform. You don't get to yell on my social platform. It doesn't matter what you're saying. Well, and it's, it's um, you, you can get to some interesting questions of what's actually permissible and not. Um, but yeah, it, it's, you know, what it, you know, t- Twitter or the, the platform formerly known as Twitter and, and the others, you know, they, they have rules of, of use, you know, that you agree to. 
And I, I love how people think that it's a con- like every so often on Facebook, where where people will you know cut and paste this post that says you know I do not agree to let anything I post here whatever and or reference a contract that we have that you don't really have it you, you're on there you agree to terms of use and you and it and it's not that's not the way copyright works. The well, and even the terms <clears throat> of use thing. I mean, at the end of the day, these are all frankly bulletin boards in somebody's front yard, and you get to walk yeah. by and put post-its on them. And if the person who owns the yard and the bulletin board doesn't want your post-it up there, they take it down. Yeah. And it's their bulletin board sucks for you. It just happens to be these guys' bulletin boards are very large. That's it. Not special. That's it. So. You remember in college how in, in the hallways and like outside of classrooms they would have bulletin boards that people would put up stuff? Hmm. Do they even do that anymore? Is it just all online? I don't know. When I was in college about 10 years ago, it seemed like they ago. did. They still, but, you know, you know I you can't know, speak like to free now. tutorials in physics and you pull the number off. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Did they even do anything? I don't know. I think everybody just posts QR codes now. Oh, my God. <laughs> don't, don't ever use a QR code. I don't know why, but, but people I follow who, like, know security are like, don't ever use a QR code. What, they're just like handy shorthand URL shortcuts that certainly couldn't possibly direct you to malware. The problem is when you like somebody posts a URL code or QR code on like a lamp post and then you open it, it's like, no, you wouldn't click, click on a link in your email, I hope. Good God, I hope. So don't open a random QR code you find on the street. If you're in a restaurant and they put a QR code on the table for you to find the menu, sure, fine, do that. Risk is low. You know what all of this is? This this is just how visionary the Reverend Dodgson was, Lewis Carroll, with with Alice discovering the little thing that says "drink me," and she's like, "Okay." <laughs> Imagine Alice with a QR code. <laughs> Another thing I should have brought up was the fact that not all citizens actually have access to the same rights as citizens as others. Yeah, civics no. doesn't apply equally. No, and and even if it does, like even if the law says the letter of the law says or the constitution says, it doesn't always like turn out that way. I mean, the in in spite of the letter of the law of what the constitution said it, with the Civil War amendments, you know, there were states that did all kinds of things to to figure out ways around it. That's why we have like that's why grandfather clauses are a thing. And so, at the beginning of last school year, I was kind of channeling, like, Titanic stuff, you know, and then eyewitness accounts of the Titanic. And, and by the way, the yes, there's the film Titanic or whatever, but what you should all watch is Night to Remember from 1958, which is an amazing film. But, but yeah, there, there are plenty. Does it have of, a floating door? It, it uh, several that oh, okay. end, end up in, in the water. But then I'm on board. It's hard to, okay. but no, it, it's a... It's a really good film, and the guy that plays Captain Smith is, like, really, really good. And Anyway, um, but it, it's, yes, there are, let's just say, plenty of, uh, plenty of us in steerage. And by us, I don't, I don't actually mean us since we're two middle-aged white men. But, no. but, yeah, I mean, plenty of people that are not treated the same and for whom there are still attempts here and there um, to target them for, oh, we need to purge our voter rolls of felons. You know, oh, sorry that your name happens to be the same as a felon, and you know. Well, there, there's, among other things, there's that, and that is a serious, serious problem. 
Not to mention the fact that actual felons get prevented from joining the voter rolls when they really, there's no reason for that. Well, no, there's a question, though. Go ahead. Which we can come back to. Okay. My, my concern is more about the people who are honest-to-gosh citizens and simply have never and can never have the right to vote because of where they live. People that are, for example, in not states of the United States. But territories, protectorates. I love the word protectorate. What, whatever euphemism they have what is for that exactly. You're mean? not really a citizen of the states, but you're really still gonna have you be here under our authority, but you don't get to speak and have a voice yeah. in that authority. I love the word protectorate, because it's like you're an independent country, but not because we're going to make your foreign policy for you. And while we're at it, you know, since we're doing foreign policy, we might as well take over some of your domestic policy as well. No, that's, and that's, that's something that, that we have, have talked about before. It's like, is that entirely fair? No, no, that's not a hard question. But if, but if you're going to, because it's going to have to be a constitutional amendment to do something about it. And like whether or not you can get two thirds of Congress and then three fourths of the States to ratify it is another is another thing but you know what what language would you use would, would you say okay maybe you're not states of the united states but you're going to have all the full rights of the united states but does that mean that congress can still decide on on some aspects of your status and whether or not to just like you know sell you to the nearest country or something or or what and just, just for clarity, for those who aren't aren't up to date on these kind of things, we're talking about places like Puerto Rico, U.S. Virgin Guam. Islands, Guam, yeah. places that are U.S. controlled territories under the control of the U.S. government. But because they're not technically states, mm-hmm. they don't have representation in the Senate or in Congress. They sometimes, if they felt it was okay, have a voice but no vote. And I believe in the case of D.C., they technically have representation in political elections, presidential, sorry, presidential elections. But oh, they don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they don't 20, have... 23rd Amendment. Yeah, but they don't have the ability still to actually have a voice they, in their own... In Congress. Yeah, in Congress, which is interesting because Congress basically overrides any local laws that are passed there, too. Well, Congress... So, yeah, no, the Constitution says that, that Congress will determine the, the laws and rules, whatever, for... You know, district not exceeding 10 miles square, blah, blah, blah. That becomes the District of Columbia. But they... Did they, you just blah, they, blah the Constitution? I, well, no, the, I blah, blah Congress. So most people okay. should be in favor of that. That's so right. I think we're fine. Um, but they... Um, no, I mean, they, they created, you know, a, a city council for uh, District of Columbia and city government. And they can make rules and things like that. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, Congress can do what they want. Yeah, they can make see. rules as long as Congress doesn't dislike them. But the... Um, citizens of the District of Columbia under the 23rd Amendment do get to vote and they get three electors, three electoral votes. And it works, you know, based on, on how they how they want to vote. But yeah, if we're talking about like Puerto Rico and Guam and, and the Virgin Islands and other territories of the United States, they can like, um, what is it? Puerto Rico gets a delegate. Yes. I got into it with somebody online about this. It's like, no, they, they do. And when I was like, no, it's a delegate and they're not voting. And this, I don't even remember what this person was trying to say, but it's like, no, they're not voting. Mm-hmm. They, they can vote in like little procedural things for Congress, but they, they don't actually have a vote on laws and, and things. Um, so they have a voice. 
Okay, but not not a vote where it matters. So let me just qualify that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, but that's a thing. It's like the, these people are American citizens, but like American citizens light. Yep. At this point, I asked, so what is the perspective of civic duty for that person? Yeah, no, I think that's a like, what is their civic duty? That's a great question, because like, well, if, if you're from Puerto Rico, it's like, okay, well, I mean, you have your own your own sort of, you know, history and, and uh, why well, see, I keep wanting to say nationality, and that's not technically what it is. At the Although, interestingly, the they compete under their own flag in the Olympics. Yeah, well, yes, no, that's true. Um, but it's like they, you know, if, if you're a citizen of Puerto Rico and, and okay, full disclosure, you know, we, we're not able to answer this. We're just able to like pose questions about this and, and sort of wonder, but it's like, what civic duty would I feel toward the United States of America as the possessor of my land, which is to them a territory of theirs. Mm-hmm. And, but at the same time, I'm born a U.S. citizen. But at the same time, there are Americans that talk about immigrants from Puerto Rico. It's like, well, okay, if you also talk about, like, immigrants from California coming into your state or immigrants from Michigan coming into your state, well, okay, I, well, I, that's fine. I, but that's not how people talk about it. No, although I, I – in all full disclosure, I have issues about immigrants from California coming to my state. But As that aside – do I. That aside, personally, because I think – None of them know how to drive. And they also voted in overwhelming, overwhelming nor- numbers – excuse me – for Ted Cruz, actually. But no, that's a whole side story. My, my interest is that apparently Guam has among the highest military enlistment rates. That, well. Of, of all states and other that, territories. And so here's a thing we can talk about that I don't have the stats in front of me. But that that if, doesn't need to stop us. If you No, it never has before. Um, even though this is episode one. Um, <laughs> but... You know, look at a lot of the people who enlist. And yeah, they want to enlist to, to have more opportunity, better their lives, serve their country. But but a lot of them are in, you know, not such great economic circumstances. Now, having said that, there's plenty of people that are in pretty good economic circumstances that are um, very patriotic and they, you know, they want to serve their country. But you do have a lot of people for whom... The military is they they enlist they view it as a gateway to a better life and more opportunity, which which it fairly is. But but even I would argue broader than that. I am taken aback, speechless, if you will, at when you see groups that have been historically maligned by the U.S. express patriotism and support of the country. When I see Native Americans or African Americans yeah. who actually give a damn when they've been yeah. given very little reason to, I did I don't know what to do with that. I'm overwhelmed, frankly, and because and like, why would they? And, you know, and it's like today we can talk about the Tuskegee Airmen and the Navajo Code Talkers, but like, let's talk about them in the context of the 1930s and 40s, when things were so much worse. Not that they're really great now but so much just openly worse and they were still like they they believed that you know that this is you know we're fighting against nazis we're fighting against tyranny mm-hmm. and then of course having to come home to that and and by the way good movie for you kids out there 
Bad Day at Black Rock. Spencer Tracy, Ernest Borgnine. And, and it's a film that that you watch it and like I'm gonna say like a lot of if, if I say kids like if, if you're you know Gen Z or even Millennials you're probably you're gonna sit it. through the first five minutes ten minutes you're gonna be like what the hell is going on this is, okay it's a train it says Southern Pacific I don't know what that is I've barely seen an Amtrak and they're in the desert and they're still in the desert and we're still in the opening credit and yeah you're gonna have to have patience because it, it relates to um, the fact that World War II in particular, you had African Americans, Native Americans, Japanese Americans who were willing to fight and die for this country, who, who endured a certain amount of tyranny at home, but were willing to nevertheless uh, sign up and, and fight a, I mean, greater tyranny. Um, Fair. I, you know, you got to say in the hopes of things would get better here. And uh, I would, it's a movie that relates to that. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to do like spoilers or whatever. There's a lot of great acting in the film. And as as the, the Pollyanna optimist of the group, um, I, I like to think that those groups who have seen the worst of America and are still willing to really serve and fight for the country clearly they see something that is worth it yeah you know they see something beyond the short-term tyranny yeah so i think that's impressive yeah no i i do that that is a level of of patriotism i mean that is the level of patriotism to me again which you know maybe we should judge all other levels of patriotism because like what you know what if you're and nothing, nothing against people who, you know, who have definitely benefited from freedom and, and, and capitalism and whatever in this country. Yes, I said the C word. Um, and, and choose to serve, to defend it. I mean, absolutely. But when you have people who have not just historically been, you know, maligned and oppressed, but even today are dealing with the, the residuals of that. And, well, and not just residuals. I mean, let's... Yeah, I mean some direct efforts mm-hmm. to to uh, towards oppression, um, but they still believe in what this country can be. I will be running for president in twenty thirty two, so <laughs> vote for Mac. All right, so what are we drinking this evening? We've had. Uh, well, actually, we started with a el- el- elderflower, elderflower martini, martini including and then, lime and uh, cucumber water, which is very good. And then we had a Negroni and then a Sazerac. Yes. So that elderflower martini was very good because it was it, the lime was not. You could still taste the the elderflower, and I mean, I'm guessing because I don't I've, I don't eat elderflowers. But um, it, it was it was nice. I mean, it was not too sweet. Um, it wasn't too tall. Um, but it, I mean, it was. It, I mean, it was. It was kind of nice. So. Yeah, and I swept that from a restaurant in Iowa, as one does. So from Iowa. Yeah. So like people were eating it at a spaghetti dinner or something. No, it was a it was a hipster pizza place, college town. So, okay. You know, right. yeah, that, so, that's yeah. what you're gonna get. Yeah. 
So yeah. like the one like Chinese food place in Iowa. You know that's no. I'm sorry. Have, I apologize. I don't want right. to rag on people from Iowa. No, no, no. So I'm gonna I'm gonna come to the I have family from Iowa, like so, from like 120 years ago. So but, so okay. so number one, they have at least two Asian groceries literally across the street from each other. So I'm guessing they have probably a half dozen or so and multiple delightful at least a half dozen in the whole state which are all in the same city yeah but that's you know but the other thing i learned in iowa is apparently like 95 percent of iowa has been converted to agricultural fields they have like converted to yes i'm pretty sure that's what it always was no no it was used to be like prairie and woodlands and now like four percent is woodlands and there's about 200 acres of prairie and the rest is corn and soy so when okay when we're talking about when did that happen like in the 20s well, right. I mean, eighteen whatevers through okay. the through the twenties, you mean, know. Yeah. No, they have, they have a lovely, if extraordinarily dated, natural history museum there, which talked about how like they used to go along the rivers, and then they had rail, and that opened up the rest of the state, and so on and so forth. But yeah. Okay. So yeah. that no, yeah. so kids on the on the Sazerac made so many corn jokes. It's like, and that's that's. I'm I'm ashamed to say that's the first thing I thought when you talked about maybe the six ocean or Asian groceries in in the state, and it's like, well, what, you know, I've never been to a Chinese food place that used corn. Whereupon I interjected, "Yeah, you have baby corn." You're right. You are absolutely right. Baby corn. Then I shared a fascinating fact I once learned while watching the original Japanese Iron Chef, which Steve shall now summarize. Our producer has mentioned that during has, has educated II. us, frankly, yes. that during World during World War II, that corn was a very significant crop because they could actually in grow Japan. it on, in Japan. Thank you, on individual residential lots, so they could actually grow their own produce, corn. Yeah, in individual Japanese residential lots, which brings to mind for me personally the fact that take a second and think about all the crops that are native to the New World. Quote yeah, quote new. Yeah, okay, not really, but yeah. Well, so we've got new corn. to people like us. Yeah, corn, yeah. potatoes, yep. tomatoes, squash, squash, that are like staples of other cuisines by this point. Yeah, like can you imagine Italy without tomatoes? You know, Ireland without potatoes. Well, I, I studied ancient but, civilizations a lot, so I'm going to say yes. But you know, I take your point. <laughs> All right. So yeah, other people's imaginations, which are not as, as erudite as yours. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it, it's it's shocking that uh, chocolate, coffee. Yeah. Not coffee. Sorry, chocolate. Well, coffee's from East Africa. Yeah, sorry. Which, by the way, why don't we grow that a lot in Texas? I mean, look at the look at the climate of East Africa. I'm sorry, I'm totally taking over there. Look at the climate of East Africa. Look at how arid some of Texas is. Why are we not growing like the world's best coffee? That's an interesting question because we grow... Grapes and olives. Grapes and lavender. And olives. And you know what else we grow that is awesome is, is like ribs and brisket. <laughs> okay, so yeah, and but cornbread. Yeah, but have you ever seen a cornbread? First bush? of all, <laughs> there's a growing of the brisket, sure, but it's mostly the smoking of the brisket that really makes it useful. Fair point. Here I felt compelled to ask, what else have we been drinking tonight? Sazerac. There was a Mar- there was a Manhattan in there somewhere. Which which is um, one of the oldest cocktails in the United States. It's from New Orleans. But I'm going to tell you the key. So listen up. Get out a notepad. You want to use some Angostura bitters and Peychaud's bitters. Like not just Peychaud's bitters. You want to use Angostura and Peychaud's. Like, but just a few drops of Peychaud's. And then like plentiful dashes. I'm sorry. 
few drops of Angostura, plentiful dashes of patience. That's the key. True. Also the absinthe, but you have to be careful with that because it's strong and it will overpower everything else. And also, pro tip, actual absinthe proof is higher than the whiskey you're putting in the rest of the cocktail. So it's not like a normal liqueur where it's going to dilute things. But it's just a splash, so it's not a problem. Although I do want to say this about like Sazerac recipes because it's like put a splash of absinthe in, in the glass with the ice and and swirl it around and pour out the excess. That is a mistake. And so you want to be good about not pouring too much, right? Yeah. But you swirl it around and then you just leave it. Okay, you're not. There's no excess to pour out. I mean, yeah, just, the, just get it right. Honestly, the idea of a mini cocktail is the like swirl around and then toss is like why? Why are yeah, you engaging the excess? Are you no such thing. are you incapable of measuring? We did have a Negroni. That's Negronis. true. We, did, we didn't mention the Negroni. And I, d- I just advice about Negroni. So a Negroni is equal measures, and you can do like three equal fingers. Fingers is like measure next to the glass of gin, Campari, and sweet vermouth, red vermouth, vermouth rosso. Um, but the the best um, sweet vermouth is Antica. But but it is like I mean, a lot of vermouth that you get at the, the liquor store is just you like no you shouldn't but Antigua you could probably drink on its own um, no you but, can totally drink Antigua on its own the, the, yeah. the problem the only problem with Antigua is it's so strong it is there's a lot going on there you I'm have to be a little bit no it's it's a lovely flavor yeah I, I had a problem when I first started learning to make Manhattans is that I would put like nearly equal portions or maybe one part Ooh, one yeah. part Antigua yeah. and two parts vodka and it was a very tasty drink but you didn't taste the whiskey because it was all all Antica. So yeah. it was just lovely. And I was like, oh, no, I need to back this off and actually balance the flavors a little Wait, bit. Wait, did you say Manhattan with vodka? I, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, he meant whiskey. I meant whiskey. Kids. Um, no, the, the Antica, so like it, it, it's... What would that um, be with vodka and, and Mountain Moral. I think that's a Moscow. Not. Well, it may be, but it's not worth it. That's um, Moscow. I mean, that's my opinion, but, but yeah. Okay. Um, but no, it, it's, it tastes like mountain laurel if, if you're from Texas or other, other similar climes and know what that's like, but it tastes like mountain laurel antique vermouth. And, um, so what I do when I make a Negroni instead of, do you of, have a habit of chewing on mountain laurel? I smell mountain laurel and smelling is very close to tasting for reasons that I am unable to articulate. I've heard that it actually smells more like grape Kool-Aid, so I'm kind of. Well, Mountain Laurel has a grape-ish scent to it, but I'm going to say it's more sophisticated because I don't want to sound like Radar from MASH drinking a grape knee-high with gin and Campari added. I can kind of see you as Radar from MASH, actually. You know what, Steve? (laughs) So anyway, kids, when I make a Negroni, I don't necessarily do like equal parts of each because if I'm using Antigua, you probably need to use half that. And then Campari, I use a little bit more because I'm all about the Campari. So, but you know, do it to your taste. I'll be honest. I, I like a lot of bitters in my cocktails. I'm usually heavy, heavy handed with the Angostura and or Peychaud's and, and that turns people off. I keep trying Negronis, but man, that Campari, that's tough. Oh, I love it. I would I would back off on the complaint. So you know what we should try next time? 
is boulevardiers. A boulevardier is a Negroni, but instead of gin, you use rye. For next time. Boulevardiers, next time. Now it's time for What's That Over There? Where we talk about the podcast, media, TV show, movie, or whatever that caught our interest recently. Mac? You mean that, like, that bright light in the sky over there? Yeah, if it's flashing. So I'm reading a book. Um, I, I had a, uh, a friend send me a TikTok that, that was basically this guy saying, like, five most horrifying books that I read, and, like, they're all true. And one of them is called The Cold Vanish, and that's what I'm in the middle of. And it's about people who go missing in national parks because it's a thing. And and just in general about like missing persons and but but especially like and but but this is this is the thing. I mean, like people go missing all the time. Like there's huge numbers of, go, of people that go missing every year, but most of them are found. Some of them alive. Um, but there are some that are like never found, never discovered. Like there, there are people that have been missing since like 1983 and that kind of, and, but the circumstances are like defy logic. Like how, like given the circumstances of this person's disappearance, like it makes no sense. Like the, the air, the physical area that they went missing in was not that large. The time frame that they went missing in was not that long. And yet they went missing and like very little trace, very, very few clues that point in any kind of direction. And they're still just missing. And, and it's, it's weird. And, and so it's just, it's interesting. And so it's called the cold vanish and, and that's worth a read. Cool. Then I had a few ideas, but I'll springboard off yours. We had a recent podcast we ran across short, uh, relatively recent called field trip. Uh, by a Washington Post reporter whose name escapes me. But uh, she looks at, I believe it's five national parks, and kind of considers their role. Um, it's, let's see, White Sands, Glacier, Gates of the Arctic, Everglades, and there's another, another I'm forgetting. Um, but she looks at them in a very interesting context, looking at climate change, Native American rights, um, what a national park is is what a national park ought to be how that definition of national park has changed over time and it's very interesting very enlightening about the role of national parks and what they can do and can't do so i think it's weird and like you you could view it through the lens of you know okay national parks where we we're intending to preserve as much natural you know um of of the woods of the mountains of the desert of the landscape as possible and there's just some weird shit out there you know, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I'll say it, Sasquatch. But I mean, it, it's like, yeah, whether, but I mean, like, there's some weird stuff that happens. Maybe it's a mountain lion, maybe it's a bear, you know, but, but it's still there. There's maybe it's a Wendigo, you know, but, but it's, there's Chupacabra. stuff out there or yeah. Well, that would be down here. Yeah. We don't really have national so parks in that neck of the woods, yeah, but yeah. Here I reminded Steve about Big Ben National Park. Yeah, there could be chupacabras there. I'll give yeah. you that. Yeah. No, so the podcast I listened to, which was perhaps a little less, you know, ridiculous. No. Um, but no, it had a very interesting take on like how I didn't, I, was, I wasn't aware that the Glacier National Park 
was apparently initially conceived as kind of an American Switzerland, and they actually have like Switzerland-style resorts and park <laughs> people in lederhosen. Like chalets with yes, ski they lifts. had apparently chalets, chalets, and it was a whole thing. And so that was interesting because she talked about the Native Americans who are right next door, but that was their original ancestral land. Yeah, and I'm and sure so, they're like, what are you people doing? Yeah, that's a lot of it. But it was very interesting seeing that that tension and that role. So that was very fascinating. And then like Gates of the Arctic, which is basically way the hell up in northern Alaska where no one hardly ever goes. And it's not intended to be visited, unlike Glacier or some other ones. It's intended to be just preserved. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole objective. So it was interesting exploration of how parks have changed in the Everglades where they originally they had the Corps come in Army Corps of Engineers. Mm-hmm. First, the objective was, we're going to drain the Everglades, which they did. Because, of course. And then they said, you know what? Now we want to restore the Everglades. So now that's the Army Corps of Engineers' job is to undo what they did 50 years ago. So it was a fascinating little podcast. Yeah. No, it's – well, and that, that actually gets into, like, a whole other thing about, like, our relationship with nature and our attitudes toward it and the idea of, like, preserving as much nature as possible. But – other people wanting to like well well some people exploit as much you know nature as possible but at least conserve you know like forests that you know are owned by paper companies and it's like okay we'll grow the trees until we can cover them that was growing trees and you know okay it's it's certain conservation going on there so that you can maintain the level of um of producing timber well, exactly. That was the fascinating thing that I'd heard only about a year ago about national forests. I assume national forests were like national parks, intended to be, you know, undisturbed recreation areas. No, they're different. Found that out in the book. Yeah, yeah. No, they were intended to preserve forest stock for tum- timber companies so that they could harvest timber as needed for whatever. And that when they put up the, the towers to watch for forest fires, they were protecting the timber stocks. Which included, most important, not most importantly, but let's say importantly, preventing Native Americans from continuing to manage yeah. the landscape as they had for millennia by controlled burns. So they snipped those controlled burns in the bud, which actually made the forests less healthy with more accumulated deadwood and more propensity for forest fires, Yeah, all in a short-sighted attempt to maintain timber stockpiles. Yeah. They come in and like, we'll handle this. And it's like, you're going to screw it up. And they yeah. screwed it up. Yeah. No, there, there's there's a fascinating, apparently, management of the landscape by Native Americans throughout North America. Oh, yeah. That is just like... Indigenous peoples throughout the Americas. Yes. Of, yes. of management of the land and the resources. And like, they, they had more or less figured it out. And, you know, they probably weren't perfect in things. And they were learning from mistakes and learning from good ideas and things like that. But they were... Like, there were ancient cities in the Amazons where their agriculture were orchards, you know, and, and it's so, but, you know, of course, that's not exactly what's in the books. No. Oh, well, they, you know, marginal farming and then hunter-gatherers. Yeah, just nomadic so wandering hunter-gatherers. We brought progress to them. As we well, and, and there were reports of, like, the railroads. And, on the East, East Coast, people, like, riding through forests where they could literally gallop through a forest because there was effectively no underbrush, just trees and, and low grasses. That's not how forests are if they're undisturbed. Right. That's how forests are if Native Americans come along every year or so and set controlled burns and to keep the yeah. underbrush down. You know, it's like, no, you were riding through a well-managed landscape. It yes. wasn't agricultural agriculture as you understood it. It was agriculture. Yeah. 
unfortunately, half of modern history is Europeans figuring out things the hard way. Half the time. The other half of the time, not figuring out and proceed. Well, this took a turn. Yeah, we're going to get into history here. And yeah, there's, there's plenty of things. That concludes the what caught our eyes. Yeah, that's... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>